0: Come back, come back, come back, come back, my second time. I'm back again here with Tiger Gao from Princeton University. He's a brilliant young man, very sensitive to all the issues that he wishes people were learning about while they're in college, as well as the nature of a podcast. And today, in the second part, Tiger will interview me and lead the questions as though I were his guest. Tiger, it's lovely to see you again. Thanks.
1: I guess the the first topic I would I would love to to ask you about is uh, how how INET is changing or trying to challenge some of the orthodoxies of economics, economics academia, economics policymaking, financial markets. What do you see as some of the main problems and challenges in these fields, and how do you think INET is trying to push through to change it?
0: Okay. Well, I guess there's uh, different categories embedded within your question. One is, where are the places that affect society where economics may be misleading and doing the most damage? In other words, where are the fights worth having? Secondly is, uh, if you're engaged in persuasion or reform, how do you approach that? And how has that changed in recent years? And so I guess where we started with INET, with the great financial crisis, and I had worked with the Senate Banking Committee, and I had worked with uh, Soros Fund Management, more capital, and both in hedge fund world, was the sense that the deregulated Finance, where government got in the way, and the markets could take care of themselves until they didn't and blew themselves up, it created a crisis—a crisis of legitimacy, of governance, of expertise, of academic finance. And as you know, George Soros had written a book going back to 1987 called *The Alchemy of Finance*. He was a student of Karl Popper. He believed in radical uncertainty. That Frank Knight or John Maynard Keynes right talked about. Yes, and uh, myself, I had become an economist under the tutelage of a man named Charles Kindleberger, who wrote a book in the years when I was his student and his research assistant, called Manias, Panics, and Crashes. So I guess I was well seated to someday meet George Soros because there was a sympathetic psychological you know, vision of the financial market process. But I think that great financial crisis, many people thought it was going to be just uh, like, okay, you guys are going to go put that back together and then we'll be back on the tracks and everything will be fine. But as we saw after the bailouts and the rise of the uh, Occupy movement on the left, the Tea Party on the right, that loss of faith in government, loss in faith or notion of corruption, as Joe Stiglitz said, the polluters got paid. Uh, the people who made the mess are the people who got bailed out. You could start to see pressure. Even people, wise former Princeton, uh, Princeton graduate, Paul Volcker, would say to me in private conversations, we are not in a place where central bank independence is going to continue to be tolerated because Wall Street created a crisis. We bailed them out, probably the right thing to do as opposed to going over the cliff into a depression for sure, but we're not buying state and municipal bonds so that schools and infrastructure and hospitals and localities can function when they're in a depression that was caused by a Wall Street recklessness. And people are going to start, you know, like Ron Paul and others, protesting. Feds independence is that allows them to be taking care of the financial sector and not society as a whole. So you could see all of this evolving. Around that time, the work that Tony Atkinson and Tom Piketty did upon Top Income and Wealth Databases, part of which INET helped to fund, Joe Stiglitz's book, The Price of Inequality, the questions of social sustainability as Tommaso Parioscopa predicted started to raise there, and then the very, very long-term concerns about political economy related to climate change the fossil fuel industry, why we weren't evolving in a constructive environmental direction when the science was so strong. What uh, uh, scholars like Naomi Oreskes wrote about the merchants of doubt, the people who tried to sow the seeds of the notion using the same playbook that the PR men for the makers of cigarettes did about health or not from tobacco they used that vis-a-vis climate to try to pretend climate was a hoax. It was a left-wing conspiracy or whatever. And and you could see all of these things kind of just rushing up onto the stage together. And I, my own view was that the election of Donald Trump in 2016 was a symptom of the despair, the symptom of the awareness that things were starting to rage out of control on a lot of different frontiers. What What's happened with INET in that context is that in the beginning, we spent a lot of time at Harvard, Princeton, Berkeley, Oxford, Cambridge. And, and I'll, I'll say this, my father had an old saying. He said, if you let people think you're a dragon, then you're a dragon. But if they think you're a dragon, go meet them, and they'll realize you're a human. My dad was a physician, but he was involved in medical politics, and he used to use that adage all the time. So I thought, I don't have any animus towards economists at prestigious institutions. But if we go there and we, we foment critical discourse and try to help open the debate with them, with their participation, maybe being slightly more inclusive of people like post Keynesian and others, we can start to evolve to a less rigid consensus than the world of rational expectations and free market ideology that seem to be in the way of thinking about things like climate change and social sustainability. But I think what happened is the pace of disintegration and fear went much faster than many people expected or or hoped would be the case. And so the influence of elite brand name institutions was demonized by the people like Marie Le Pen, the AFD in Germany, the pro-Brexit crowd. And Donald Trump and his cohort. And so you sense that uh, this, uh, and then I guess in parallel with that, was going from traditional media where the influencers, the op ed pages, the network television, the leading cable television were the conduits to people and out into the world of social media. I remember once the famous New York Times reporter Tom Friedman and I had been in a working group. And he said, the only way I can keep my sanity is to not look at all the comments on Twitter about my column. I have to go inward yeah. and not be bombarded yes. by hate mail and shaken to my roots. And I thought that was a beautiful and a humble way of of expressing it, but the, but the idea that Walter Cronkite, the New York Times, and three Ivy League professors at Harvard, Yale, and Princeton decide what America's going to do just wasn't the model anymore. And so I guess what I would say now is at INET, we want to foment critical discourse, not saying we have a policy, but saying let's debate the full spectrum of the policy so that people learn. They enlarged their imagination. One of the mentors of my undergraduate career was an international conference named Rudy Dornbush. He's from he's no longer alive. But Rudy once said to me when he was consulting for the hedge fund industry, he said, You were my student. Why do you guys get paid so much and we don't get paid? And I said, Rudy, your job, and you do it beautifully, is to expand the imagination. And our job is to pick the right model. (laughs) And I don't know why they pay one more than the other, because both are valuable. But he he got a good laugh out of that, so did I. but, but But the expansion of the imagination, multidisciplinary activity and so forth, I think is people like the MacArthur Foundation, when I was starting INET, put together multidisciplinary research groups And everybody, economists, sociologists, anthropologists, political scientists, historians, all felt they learned more because of the respect of the people that weren't in their tribe that they developed, because they're quality minds in all of these disciplines. But as the outside game of social media, as you might call the signal-to-noise ratio, deterioration took place, as the loss of trust in elite institutions I think that INET has moved in directions which have to respect that change in the channels of influence, but it's also moved in the direction of thinking what is important is not just influencing the research leaders or the peer review journals, which we've done a lot of work in analyzing how they constrict issue space or have crony cabals, etc. But people like James Heckman and Angus Deaton and George Akerlof had done really serious work about these, these challenges of the peer review journals. Yes. And, and you know, they influence tenure, they influence research assessment exercises in many countries. They'll pick a guy who's widely published before they'll pick a guy whose proposal is interesting because some people are like in a tenure decision. If you say no to tenure and you're a dean, you're, you might get sued. How do you defend yourself? If you're a research allocator for the government and you fund a controversial project, how do you defend yourself? And they were using the scores card of peer-reviewed journal as a, what I call indicator or litmus test of who is deserving of research funding. So it's a very powerful mechanism. But I think, to come back to it, at at this juncture, moving upstream towards the realm where we started this conversation. What's in the curriculum? What's the education? What's the difference between tests and credentials in your major and the broad array of things? How can INET create what I will call a repository of alternative thinking? that's not just taking a bite out of an Ivy League agenda, it's fomenting a broader critical discourse and making it free. Then a student like yourself, put it in a metaphor, your head is not in a cage. You don't have to pay for it. There are things to explore that you may disagree with, but they tweak your imagination. And I think moving towards that realm also is doing something which is not playing an inside game with experts, but recognizing the outside game of the broad political participation of citizens at elite schools and other schools who can become more sensitive, more sophisticated, more curious, and more vital as citizens in contributing to a democracy in which market capitalism is embedded. And at times may need to be constrained. So there are a lot of facets to it. It's it's a very uh, fluid thing, and I think it requires a lot of humility. Uh, in the sense that it's not, I, I I think you could get depressed about not being persuasive in many instances. I think it's a glacial process rather than an aha kind of. Thing, but but it, there there are many fronts associated with the challenge, and there's a changing structure of society and what's viewed as legitimacy, and they all they all influence strategy on the fly.
1: Mr. Johnson, I guess to very quickly recap, I mean, all all it was very dense your your answer, and and uh, you you first brought up some of the large macro financial trends that, that we witnessed and, and I have to yeah. bring up my own thesis, thesis advisor, Professor Atif Mian who yeah, is I know the him director well. of the a, of He's the a great guy. Minowat House Center.
0: of yes. Death that he and uh, House Professor Sufi exactly. in Chicago does a wonderful book.
1: He, he's one of the, one of the foremost uh, financial economists of our age and he was obviously explaining to us uh, he was trying to link inequality, credit, um, the, 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 the fall of interest rates, asset prices, productivity growth, all of those things together and, and, and analyzing those secular trends. And and so that was one part, the, the macro financial issues and, and how a lot of the experts and market participants before 2008 were unable to, to, to imagine the unknowns, as you were saying. Yeah. So so that was the, well, for the instance, second part. For instance,
0: the bailouts yeah. instead of Mortgage reductions and recapitalization yes. of the banks, and right uh, down of to the their bondholders, had huge distributional and fiscal implications. Yes, but but yes. the world the world didn't have that all on deck and in a consciousness yes. of like these are on the menu, ex post. Yes, he Ex-post. and Sufi explored and articulated yeah. beautifully what might have happened, but Absolutely. wasn't necessarily in the middle of a crisis where anybody had the confidence to do those things. Right.
1: And, and and the second part that, that you were bringing up, I, I guess, is what I would say is the fragility of the expert class in today's age somehow, because there, there are many explanations of this. Some people say it's because the experts weren't so good, and there are people who say it's because the media landscape has you know shortened everybody's attention span, and the experts feel obli- obligated to adjust to today's media landscape, which inherently reduces the quality of their arguments. Right? You have to reduce... Uh, my, my, my current professor, uh, Christopher Sims, who is uh, a Nobel laureate many years ago. And, and when I take his class, I mean, his way of thinking as, as a Bayesian, how he thinks about probability, how he updates his beliefs under uncertainty in today's age, how he thinks about hypothesis testing for, for COVID and why vaccines should, should work. And, and I mean, it's brilliant. But, but the common people do not hear this. If you look at Twitter, you look at all the shouting matches between academics. And if you go on CNN, you feel like the economists do not know what they're talking about. And, and, and so, so, so I guess the the fragility of the expert class because of all those societal forces is another thing that you, you mentioned. And the third thing is something very quite close to my heart, which is the, the tyranny of the big journals. I have personally n- not gone through the, the publishing process myself. I'm just an undergrad. Uh, but but around me, so many graduate students tell me horror stories. Uh, and and we see Twitter threads, very recently, there, there there was a very famous Twitter thread just a couple of days ago uh, accusing some MIT Nobel laureates for, for abusing their power uh, and for threatening um, people. And it seems that everybody outside of the top schools have some horror story to tell uh, about the bad culture in top schools and how people in top schools abuse them. And, and uh, yeah, so, so which is, which is, uh, lets you think about the irreality of academia and how... Uh, academics might be even more political than the corporate sector and they might be fighting each other for, for they might be incentivized to, to, to really fight for uh, re- rewards, reputations and, and prestige in a, in a different way, in a, in a different battle. Well, yeah.
0: um, one, one has to be what you might call an institutional economist to study this context because at one level, the idealized or romantic notion of the intellectual professor is someone who is independent curious, has a brilliant sensitivity and skills to render, whether writing or mathematics or what have you. And so they are producing for the public good. There is another sense, which is beautifully articulated in a 1922 article by the Muckraker and Gadfly, H. L. Mencken. The name of the article is The Dismal Science where he says, the only people I trust less than theologians are economists, because they understand the structure of power, they understand what promotion, they understand what angers the trustees or the development department. They understand what would stop them from getting a government position of prestige, like a member of the Federal Reserve Board or Federal Trade Commission or something like that. They understand what the media won't publish because they're advertisers Would be furious if they carried, so that in essence, and this is a beautiful uh, comment I got from one of my board members, Jillian Tett, who works, she's a cultural anthropologist, she works at the FT. I asked her over a lunch at the onset of INET, I said, Jillian, give me some advice. She said, Robert, study the silences, because what not said will tell you where the power is in society. And I thought that was a fascinating notion was, but So in some level, like I said, the romantic open discourse where everything is these free, fair-minded, brilliant people exploring is overlaid with all the incentives and the forces, which you might call the sociology and anthropology of the profession and that surrounds the profession, the context in which it's embedded. And that makes for a very uh, different interpretation and the cynic on the outside says the expert is a tool. What John Ralston Saul, the famous Canadian philosopher in his book Voltaire's Bastards calls the rational courtesan. They're in the king's court, they're serving power. They're not describing truth or the spectrum of possibilities. And So, I I think there there are lots of uh, people who might be, which I might say, too paranoid or too suspicious. But when the social system isn't working right, it fuels through the emotion of fear those suspicions and expertise goes on trial.
1: Uh, Mr. Johnson, I guess just to quickly follow up, and, and perhaps this is something I'd love to hear your thoughts on. Uh, which is that people outside of academia are sometimes very skeptical of what people in academia are studying. Uh, They they think a lot of the times academia is ultimately not impact-driven. They're ultimately incentivized by their own intellectual gratification. You you need your research to convince three people around you or the referees at journals in order to publish, and you make whether marginal or non-marginal improvements of certain literatures, but, but you are incentivized to make theoretical, you're, you're you're turned on by the theoretical challenges rather than seeing whether your, your, your research impacts people. And, and a lot of practitioners, whether in financial markets, certainly in financial markets, they're very skeptical of financial economists. But even in even in policymaking, because I, I recently uh, spoke with a, a, a former Indian high-level uh, policymaker who was on our show, and, and he, he was advising Modi. And, and he was saying how a lot of the research done by uh, Esther Duflo and, and Abhijit Banerjee, you know, the, the Nobel, very recent Nobel laureates from 2020, randomized control trials, J-PAL, poverty reduction, he said it almost had no impact on economic policy. I mean, it, because you are doing highly controlled, idealistic experiments, right? You just need a couple million dollars, you find two villages and you run randomized control trials. But what happens many years after the intervention, you don't really know. Is the, is the impact sustainable? You don't really know. And even if you can prove that there is some kind of improvement, uh, it seems that so much of academia is about identification, finding some causality, publishing papers, and, and whether this uh, really relates to the political economy of the country, whether, whether it suits the political purposes or agenda, or whether it is realistic to adopt that policy. It is not of the economists' concerns. They're there to make theoretical uh, improvements. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. But I guess the other side would be be saying, what do you mean? I mean, that's what economists are supposed to do. They're supposed to uh, push for theoretical arguments and think about these things and not have to worry about normative questions and whether their policies can be adopted by this uh, current regime and so on. So I I wanted to hear your thoughts on, on, on this debate.
0: Yeah, I've got a number of thoughts. One of which reminds me when I was a graduate student at Princeton. The Institute for Advanced Studies at Princeton was run by an economist named Albert Hirschman. And uh, I would encourage people to read his biography by the Princeton historian Jeremy Edelman, because Hirschman was the kind of guy that when he talked to me, I was a young guy wondering if I wanted to stay and do all this formalism. And he said, well, you know, you've got a lot of training in math, you ought to stick it out, past your generals, and you can take history courses and stuff. But he said, I've always felt that an economist, every five years should go out into the world to reconfigure what is important. In other words, what should be studied, what matters, you don't get from the inward rituals and the fashion shows and the preferences of the peer review journals. You get that from talking to business people, policymakers, understanding where suffering is, and trying to understand with your toolkit how to address those real challenges. So I think I think that Edelman uh, book gives you that sense of Hirschman, what I'll call the inductive inspiration as to what your research agenda should be that makes a meaningful contribution to society. And that staying inside metaphorically, the monastery, dealing with your peers, being completely obsessed with the technique, the elegance, the beauty of a mathematical representation. And there's nothing wrong with being a great mathematician. It's like mastering a language. But it, it uh, if it's done at the expense of using the tools for some purpose, it invites that skepticism. Early on, I, well, before the pandemic, I travel around the world a lot. INET is not an American institution in many ways. We've got outposts in India, relationships in China, all over Europe and what have you. And I remember being in China one time at Tsinghua University for a lunch during a conference. And some of the scholars said to me, You know the most frustrating thing about our profession? I said, what's that? He said, when we go to the top five peer review journals, which everybody tells us we have to do to get tenure here in China, we put out a paper that's an empirical paper based on what's happening in China because we think the world's interested in China. And I said, well, it is. He said, yes, but they say that the referees are all in roughly North America or London, and the referees don't have confidence that they understand Chinese data. So they want us to take the paper with the same con- concept and apply it to American data, and then they'll publish it. And these guys, these yeah. guys were they were tearing their hair out. They were like, <laughs> wait a minute. No, people are interested in China. China's like this big new mystery coming on stage in the world economy. That should be published. And uh, but it, so there, there were lots of interesting s- stories as I explored uh, what you might call the basis for INET and then the how does INET help or make an impact early on. And I don't know how you match elegance, rigor, and relevance to satisfy everybody. All three have a, a dimension of luster. But if you leave out relevance, then as you say, the practitioners, the policymakers, and the citizens are going to wonder what you're doing in giving this profession any kind of prestige or license over the governance or the system structure of society.
1: I, I guess one other thing I would uh, qu- quickly add on to that, uh, I mean, speaking of the economics profession, uh, perhaps you're a little bit more distant from, from this, but uh, at my age, when, when students think about getting a PhD, everybody is talking about this new trend called uh, pre-doctoral fellowships, pre-doctoral research assistants, pre-doc. Uh, you, you do two years of RA research for a professor, and then they'll write you a recommendation letter so that you can get into a PhD program, which means nowadays you would do two years of that plus six years of PhD, which is eight years. It's a very very long commitment. Oh, you and, meant and this you,
0: you know, you didn't mean doing it like, like I did, riding shotgun. I worked for Morris Edelman and Kindleberger while I was taking classes. You're talking about it as a full time. No,
1: it's a full time job.
0: Wow, wow. Uh, okay.
1: I, I, I don't know if you know this. I mean, I mean, uh, it started with Raj Chetty. I mean, he he's the guy who kind of made made this very famous because it was really funny. I was talking to my friends. They were saying, that Raj Chetty is like showing up at the all the conferences with like. Uh, three, five publications every year, and everybody is like, what is, what is he doing? I mean, obviously, Raj Chetty is like, uh, the, the, the best applied macroeconomist of our time, yeah. But, but also, he has uh, 12 pre-docs. <laughs> in, yeah. in some, he has a, a yeah. big lab. He's built and, a and, machine, wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and people say uh, these labs are almost like investment banks. I mean, n- n- not literally, but in some sense, it's that you, you go in there for, for two years, uh, they train you into doing data work, and you crunch data every day for two years. And eventually you'll c- come out getting into a much better uh, PhD program than you otherwise would because uh, you, are, you have a recommendation letter from a yeah. famous professor. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and these days, it has almost become somewhat of a prerequisite. And, and there are European students who would do their master's in Europe and then come to the U.S. to do another pre doc before applying to PhD program. So you see all those 25-year-olds, 26-year-olds, you know, uh, starting their PhD because they did like two masters and two pre-docs.
0: Yeah, when I was a graduate student, what a lot of folks did was they went to London, they went to places like LSE and UCL, and they did a masters, and then they came in, and it it was almost like for the first year or so, they were on cruise control because they'd already taken the equivalent of general exams. (laughs) <laughs> and they would make money as teaching and research assistants and then be ready to go in year three. Some yes. of them finished in the third year with their dissertation because they, they were on the, uh, how you say, skill development ahead of the curve yeah. where they could do that. But I hadn't, I hadn't heard about the pre This, the this is
1: kind of the, the, the new big buzz that everybody, every school, every professor is, is hiring this thing. And, and I, I was talking to uh, Professor Bill Janeway, who is a yes. co-founder of, of, and I had forgotten to mention that he was uh, one of the first people I interviewed for my own podcast two years ago. So it, yeah. I, I, I'm very- He's indebted on the to I him. Had it, it, he's a donor
0: Tiger. Yeah. Yeah. Yes,
1: I, I've been watching his, uh, his videos on, on venture capitalism and public-private partnership. But yeah, uh, yeah so, so he, he was telling me, uh, I said, you had a PhD, but then you had a PhD and then you went to uh, investment banking and, and private equity and to, be, to do finance, how is that? And he said, I got my PhD in three years. And I said, if I were to get a PhD this year, uh, I would need eight, uh, eight years, basically, of my life. And, and, and now, I, I, I think that basically delays the profession. I mean, this is a huge, huge debate within the economics professions these days, whether it is fair to treat these uh, undergrads uh, and, and whether doing this pre thing is good for them. Because the pro side is saying you, you gain two years of skills, you think about research questions, and you get to work with a professor very closely for two years. The downside side is, um, especially the theorists who don't use a lot of those pre-docs, they, they really hate this because they say you, you push your back for two years and you're, you're grinding those data. You, if you get your PhD in eight years, is that really worth it? So, so I guess my, my question to you would be, um, what, what do you see as the, as the necessity of, of an economics PhD? Because you got the economics PhD, but you, ended up going, you did not end up going to academia. So did you no, no, feel no, like I... I mean, it, it, these days it's, it's not worth it to, to
0: do this? Well, I think uh, different people are wired different ways. And I just got to the place where I, I had a lovely experience. Alan Blinder, Bill Branson, Joe Stiglitz, Avinash Dixit, all kinds of very interesting people. Uh, lots of Lester Chandler, Bill William Balmall. Uh, but I just didn't sense, and, and I had a lot of confidence in mathematics, having gone to MIT and studied a lot of aspects related to sailing and naval architecture and whatever prior to that, but I just, I didn't feel like my sense of purpose was going to be fulfilled and it, 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 in academia. I really, I just didn't push in that direction. Uh, and I guess uh, maybe maybe I was a little bit influenced by my father. He had been an all-American swimmer at University of Michigan, kind of a superstar, went to their medical school, was a professor publishing everywhere, and he followed in the footsteps of his father, and he left academia. He became what's called a clinical professor of urology in Detroit at Wayne State University, not at Michigan, which was like, you know, in the Hall of Fame of medical schools, and built a private practice. And I asked him, why did you leave academia, Dad, when I was in the middle of my PhD program? He said, the smaller the stakes, the bigger the fight. It's just not a sociology you want to live in. And, I, I, you know, you can laugh. That's a funny kind of thing. But his his sensibility was that there's all kinds of competition and petty infighting. What are you enduring emotionally and what are you trying to do? And I think combination of that, and uh, there was a professor at Princeton in those days who's no longer with us, uh, Peter Kennan. He and I used to talk at great length about issues in international finance. He and I And Paul Volcker went fishing together, and Volcker inspired me to come to the Fed and do my dissertation fellowship there, and then helped me get a job on Capitol Hill, where I had to do things like learn how to write speeches, uh, you know, different techniques. And I just was captivated by learning the learning process. Of understanding the institutions of politics and markets and what have you. And uh, so, maybe to use the Albert Hirschman analogy, the inductive inspiration and curiosity captured my attention. And uh, I, I didn't probably think I had the imaginative gifts of someone like Joe Stiglitz, who very few people do, but at the time, he was my teacher. I knew him and Sanford Grossman and the handful of people that were just putting out theoretical papers over and over and over that were always at the cutting edge and the frontier. And I admired them greatly, but I didn't think that was my calling, if you will. It was more an intuitive thing. Uh, uh,
1: Mr. Johnson, you were saying how uh, the... the, the in- the incentive, I mean, sorry, the, the pie was so small, so that, such that the the fight was really big. And I wanted to ask you if, you if you think academia would really need to reform dramatically in order to change the culture or retain more talents, because in some way, you could say finance is not really a zero sum game because it's not sure some people gets burned in in the trades. But overall, if you're good, you can make money. You generating alpha does not really prevent another fund manager from generating alpha. But in academia, there's only a certain limited amount of job posts, uh, uh, journal entries uh, and, and you know, every top school hires three people a year. So, so it seems that the pie, you cannot actually grow the pie uh, uh, almost in some way. It's like it's like Bitcoin or gold, yeah. <laughs> limited uh, in supply. <laughs>
0: well, you're right. The, 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 uh, well, the demand for scholars is limited where you can grow the pies in the quality of what you do. And if you think you can make a marked difference and be rewarded for it and be satisfied by it, uh, and that has to do with the tastes of the profession, what they uh, would ask you to do, what they would honor as truly creative. When I was in graduate school, not man who's a professor at Princeton, Dilip Abru was a brilliant game theorist. He and David Pierce, were both graduate students, my year or the year ahead of me, and their their gifts in expressing game theoretic puzzles or or <coughs> problems in the different ways of resolving was was extraordinary. And they were quickly picked up by elite institutions. Princeton had a reputation in the realm of game theory and high theory. And uh, they were they were in their element. And so uh, I guess for me, coming out of that Kindleberger realm, he was a man who'd worked at the New York Fed, worked with the Marshall Plan, the intelligence community, had an institutionally inspired sense of economics and what was important. Engaged in economic history. And I think, you know, economic history is fascinating because what it really is is multidisciplinary, open season around particular episodes. Hopefully, with things like data and economic tools, you can shed light on things, but it's much less constrained than working in the theoretical framework. And, you know, modern. People who've got a historical background, people like Adam Tooze at Columbia and others are able to express a great deal uh, that's germane to now by using historical analogies. And uh, you're right when we've talked in the past about being wary of how people use history to justify what they want you to believe now, that it, how good a fit is the historical precedent for the challenge before us is always an open question. But I, in my own sensibility, which has got a lot more humanities and music and what I'll call right brain element, I didn't think I was in my element by trying to be a, a stellar economic theorist. And I didn't think I had the gifts that Dilip or David Pierce or others had in that in that realm, which was what you might call at the core of the fashion of the time.
1: I, I guess, how do you see as some of the uh, urge, either urgent challenges of academia, but also what they're generating these days? Because we know that uh, setting aside economics and social sciences, just just in general, in society. A lot of people, especially if you're wondering what what students like to talk about these days, uh, students really like to use the word postmodernism. Everybody's using this word these days, which is saying in a postmodern society, uh, truths don't matter as much, values are not seen as important, uh, rules and norms used to be more set in stone and now everything is existentialism, everybody has to create their own narratives and, and blah yeah. blah blah. and it's all and, relative and yeah <laughs> exactly and, and and one of the, the thoughts I, I wanted to bring up and also ask your thoughts on is that whether you think academia today I guess not just limited to, to economics but also other humanities and philosophy and so on, whether academia is more destructive than generative today be, because there are intellectual historians who are saying that, Pre-modernism was about creating all those blocks on top of each other, whereas postmodern is more like melting away all the blocks. And that's why many feel that the second order consequences of all kinds of movements these days are not very well understood. And they're very destructive because it makes people feel victimhood and so on. And, and other even people like Thomas Sowell um, in, in economics have made these arguments and, and people are unsatisfied with the kind of research uh, that, that we're seeing so r- rather than imagining new ways of economic policy or, or whatever uh, it, it seemed to be a lot of questioning uh, of previous maybe maybe not in economics per se but, but it seems that in other disciplines a lot of people are saying that so, so I wanted to hear your thoughts on whether you, you see us being in a, in a cultural slash social academic recession in, in, in some way, where, where people wake up in the morning and they're more interested in in owning the libs or, or something rather than creating in something. They, they're, they're creating consuming culture, but, but, but we're not really doing that.
0: We're not creating. Yeah. Well, I do think that all of the breakdowns associated with postmodernism, at one level has been constructive in that false confidence gets replaced by a certain humility when the arbitrariness, what I will call the presuppositions are exposed as being that and not science. You know you can create a nice array of things with normative implications and call it science unless the presuppositions which are building blocks, arbitrary, sometimes making it, quote, mathematically tractable, have a huge influence on your result, in which case you're not proving anything, you're asserting something. So I think some of the postmodern challenges restored some humility. On the other side, and we've talked about a little bit about the uh, commodification of social design, when what people assert is truth is essentially marketing for power, and the power system is creating a tremendous amount of suffering, and in the case of climate change, a tremendous amount of danger, then the people who are engaged in these rituals, these intellectual jousts, are fiddling while Rome burns and that there is an enormous need for courageous people who understand what's going wrong and there's an even deeper need for understanding the psychology of healing. The book I most often cite in podcasts now was written by a man named John W. Gardner who was a Republican Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare in the 1960s in the Lyndon Johnson, which was a Democratic administration, who presided during the time of the riots in Watts and Detroit and Newark and other places. He presided at the time when Martin Luther King was murdered. He presided and observed as a former cabinet official, as the Black Panthers rose up, as the '68. Conventions, particularly in Chicago, exhibited violence, and his people were terrified of a disintegration. And I would encourage everyone to read his book called The Recovery of Confidence, because it's about needing dissent and needing purpose at the same time. And when you talk about the questions of uh postmodern rivalries and debates and so forth, it feels like the dissent is present but the purpose hasn't been defined. Technique, knowledge and wisdom are different parts of the human spirit. And I think that many of the people screaming at these academic food fights, metaphorically, are saying, you're not focused on the important questions, and you're not exercising wisdom, and you're not healing society, and perhaps you're not free to do so. I know people who study universities. Jerry Heron at Wayne State in Detroit uh, wrote a book in the 1980s called The University and the Myth of Cultural Decline, which was the power reaction against uh, what I'll call left-wing humanitarian or humanist uh, liberal arts educators. There was a famous document called the Powell Memo by a man named Louis Powell. He wrote it as a memo for the Chamber of Commerce, and he later became a Supreme Court Justice saying, why are we letting the anti-war movement and people like Ralph Nader and the hippies and these left-wing intellectuals have so much influence over the design and structure of our society in this chaotic period. We need to exercise the strength and the power of corporations and the sense of purpose and the, and the not demonization, but the actual affirmation of the importance of business. And he, he created a rallying cry for Profound change in the incentives around the university. And I don't know if perhaps now, 40 years after that time, maybe a little bit longer, 50 years after, I think it's 49, 50 years since the Paul Memo was written, whether the pendulum has gone too far in the other direction. There are a whole lot of people that joust to demonstrate their intellectual acumen, and they only pick fights that won't offend powerful people. Because they don't want to get caught in the crossfire. So I don't know how we deal with important questions that do affect concentrations of power, and exercise wisdom and a recovery of confidence, unless courage is is part of it. But clearly, the kind of wrestling matches that you're talking about are not sufficient for intellectual. To to play a, a wholesome and important role. Yeah, uh,
1: Mr. Johnson, it's, it really fascinates me that um, you didn't use the word uh, truth in 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 what you were saying. You were t- talking about return to this kind of dialogue or whatever. And and uh, a lot of thought leaders these days and and public intellectuals, uh, they they often cite misinformation as a big threat to our society, and they cite the deviation from facts and truth as a, as a huge um, reason why we're in the shape we are today. Because, I mean, going back to your very first question about Rome being on fire, and, and I wanted to hear your thoughts on, on truth because it seemed to me that, 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 that truth... Uh, I'm not sure if truth matters as much as we make them to be, in, in the sense that humans are not naturally truth-seeking. We, we're, uh, we're more driven by our narratives. And narrative is, is is a word that you used in our previous discussion, and it, it, it's not just the stock markets and bitcoins that are being driven by narratives right now, rather than fundamentals. But rather, uh, you know, you you all know, Harari wrote wrote this in *Sapiens*, and his whole theory is that humans are fundamentally organized by uh, narratives. So, so, uh, so I, I wanted to ask your thoughts on this statement because it, it seems that there's no point to try to get back to the truth because truths don't really. Exist per se, but but it should be that we need to get better to get back to better narratives. Meaning, back in back in the post World War II period, it used to be patriotism that, that was the main narrative, and today it was nationalism. Today's tribalism that, that's the main narrative, that's that's driving the division. So it seems that w- it seems that we just need to create a better set of narratives, right?
0: Well, I think the yearning for that notion called truth is a reflection of what my friend Vincent Kendrick in Denmark wrote about in his book Infowars. And it's, it's about the inability of people to uh, experience credible guidance, trust in the people who are making the arguments, etc. And that, and that yearning is understandable. On the other hand, I can take uh, from the turbulence between two world wars of the author E.H. Carr, who uh, wrote a wonderful book called The 20 Years Crisis. But the book I'm quoting from is called What Is History? And he said, facts are like sacks. If you don't put something in them, they don't stand up. And the idea that truth is something that is there, as opposed to something that is there in conjunction with the interpretation, is, I think, uh, a false innocence. I think that the facts you collect, there's a poet that I quote frequently, named by NQ is his stage name, in for in question. And he's got a poem called Evidence. And in the poem, he says, people will find evidence to support what they want to believe. So is that truth? Is that the whole truth? Is that a subset of the truth? Even if the subset of that evidence is accurate, if it's not associated with the evidence you didn't cultivate, it may be misleading. So trying to understand what truth means is a very subtle and difficult thing. And I understand the yearning for the ideal given the chaos that's before us, but I don't think it's, like I said, I don't think it's achievable without the role of interpretation. And that brings you back to narrative and everything else as the partner with truth. At some level, what we want are high integrity, trustworthy scholars who marshal evidence and paint pictures for us of what the challenge appears to be and how they would resolve it. But the techniques of partial truth of what Vincent Kendrick calls info wars are quite effective. And at some level, we need to, I think, deepen our awareness of mind science to understand the regions of the brain and what affects your perception of truth, how you might be given comfort rather than truth by a certain stimulant, and that the comfort that you experience overrides your ability to discriminate between truth and falsehood. But, but, it, but I, these are very, very interesting questions that you're asking. But but truth truth is not quite so easy. I remember John Lennon singing the song, Just Give Me Some Truth. And I remember one of my friends who used to uh, know and work around the Beatles and some of the Beatles, he said, he used to say, Give Me Some Truth. He'd sing it on stage and then after the concert he'd mutter things like, I just wish I knew what truth was. And... I guess I guess that's where I, I think I think John Lennon's intuition is pretty close to where I sit.
1: Yes. Wow.
0: Um,
1: do Do you think we have made progress as humans? I
0: think we've made digress <laughs> in the last ten years. <laughs> I think we've gone backwards, and I think some of the uh, end of things. What the media had, there was a law called the Fairness Doctrine, the polarization in politics and other things. The knowledge of how repetition and in an online sense, you're not dealing with someone you know face-to-face that you've got to deal with day after day. You're being bombarded by hundreds of people who you only know electronically. How you process that signal-to-noise ratio and discern what you believe is true. is a very different process now. When you're with a human being, there's all kinds of elements of nonverbal communication. What poker players call a tell, you're watching the body language of the individual to try to discern when you're playing poker, whether they're bluffing or whether they're holding a strong hand of cards. And they study each other. There's a psychologist woman from Russia who went to Harvard named Maria Konnikova, she writes for the New Yorker, who's written a lot about this subject. And I think I think her nuance, she's someone I would go to with that that question that you asked me, and she'd do a better job of answering it than I can.
1: I see, I see. Um, uh, another thing that I wanted to hear your thoughts on is, uh... You worked with George Soros, and we, we, at the beginning of our interview, we, we talked about uncertainty, no, n- not knowing the unknowns of the unknowns, basically. <laughs> and and uh, I wanted to hear your thoughts on all the recent trends in finance that, that we're seeing. I mean, not just the GameStop saga, not just the rise of Bitcoin, not just that stock market has become more detached from fundamentals, but also the fact that we seem to be in another irrational, exuberance, huge boom that uh, a lot of people say there is no way we don't crash uh, eventually because y- y- it is simply supported by Federal Reserve policies, liquidity, easy money, cheap capital, low interest rate. None of this is sustainable. But on the other hand, it also seems that people have such a doubt on the expert class for getting us out of this Horrible situation. This new, it seems that this has to be the new normal, and this new normal has to continue for a long time. So you would be a fool to think that yeah. this will crash.
0: Stock well, markets I, I, only go up. Yeah, <laughs> I would encourage people to look at George's book, *The Alchemy of Finance*, because there's no sense in which you can say everything follows some kind of deterministic equilibrium. But you have to have a hypothesis about what's gonna change that brings the market down and the timing of when. You know, I had a lot of friends who were short sellers when I worked in the hedge fund business that worked with other firms, but they were my acquaintances. Uh, Jim Chanos, who's quite famous and was involved in the Enron episode of unmasking Enron's uh fraudulent positions through some of their special purpose vehicles. And people like Jim and others in that realm used to say to me, it's really dangerous to short a technological innovation that has no earnings because there's no way you can disprove that hypothesis. And as long as people have that subjective psychological conviction, the price isn't going to come down. You take something like the steel industry, and you say, we can look at 100 years of data on the steel industry, and the P-E ratio goes from 5 to 23. And if it's at 28 now, you think the pendulum's rocked way over to one side, and it'll probably mean revert. And it's dangerous to be there. Well, looking at the circumstance right now, and I'm not an active speculator, so I don't want to pretend from my past that I know I have any particular insights, but I don't see interest rates coming back up until the real economy comes back up. And the real economy will either come back up through fiscal spending on real projects, like energy transformation, and a rise in wages, and perhaps a rise in wages in the lower two-thirds of society, where the propensity to consume out of every dollar earned is much higher. So therefore, potentially a redistribution of wealth and income to a more level place would create a more resilient and stronger aggregate demand, which would allow interest rates to go back up, and so then you might say interest-sensitive sectors are going to get hurt, other sectors are going to do well, and the Fed will follow that because there won't be an inflation danger until that aggregate demand strength is there. and So we might wallow continue to wallow in this low interest rate environment for a very long time but I to go back to the Soros question what's the catalyst for busting what people are calling a bubble if you say to it me they're going to they're, they're <laughs> going to stay with accommodative monetary finance for the next day next decade excuse me then you're not going to want to get off the train especially when bond yields are like one and a half percent. Yes, uh, which is well, already seen as too high these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I don't know. I, 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 your question is a good one. I'm not in the cockpit. You'd do much better to get my former colleague Stanley Druckenmiller or yeah. Lewis Bacon, <laughs> or others to be on your podcast and explore these issues, but, uh, uh, yes. but, but, I, but I do think uh, that notion that Soros has, we don't know the future. And you got to tell me what you know that the rest of the world doesn't and when they're going to find out, so it will catalyze a change in their perceptions which sends the market down. And I don't have that hypothesis, and I'm not studying it closely enough to, to give you yeah. one. But that's the process I would have followed had I still been in the businesses.
1: It's very hard to do hypothesis testing, especially when, when the distribution, underlying distribution is shifting, as you said. Yeah. When, when you do not know what the actual probability distribution is, per se. So, yep. a, yeah, this is the radical uncertainty.
0: You can um, be right about the outcome, but, but you can be wrong. What is yeah. the old saying, John Maynard Keynes said? The market can stay wrong longer than you can stay solvent. Then
1: you can solvent, exactly. Um, and, uh, which is why short sellers get burned all the time because they may be right eventually, but they couldn't stay solvent. Yeah. It it seems that INET is somewhat connected with Silicon Valley, in some way. I mean, you you mentioned Pia is is uh, leading an operation in San Francisco. Y- you guys certainly do uh, very interesting research related to tech innovations and productivity and, and so on. So I I guess this is a very gen- general question about whether you see Silicon Valley, like what values you see Silicon Valley is contributing to society right now, what whether we are in a great technological stagnation that some people would say, whereas uh, Eric Weinstein would say we, we are, uh, we've been uh, innovating so much in bits and not the quantum, <laughs> mm.
0: um, yeah. Well, well, I think first of all, um, there's a I see a tide raising. Uh, I'll quote my friend and professional colleague, Rohinton Medora, who runs the Center for International Governance Innovation, has been a partner with INET uh, through his founder, Jim Balsillie, being one of our founding donors. And Rohinton asked a question. We were at a meeting at the Vatican last, just before the pandemic, last February, with Pope Francis and his team. And Rohinton, on paraphrasing, said essentially, Why do we have a Food and Drug Administration where you trial the drugs, you make sure they're safe before you put them out there, but with large-scale social transformation of technology, they go out there and they can do good or they can do damage, but we don't test them, evaluate them, or pre-authorize them? I think there are a lot of people who are frightened right now of the what I might call natural monopoly, the increasing return structure, which creates tremendous concentrations of power in the governance of information and perceptions by people like Google and Facebook. And so there is a lot of movement afoot. INET has produced some research reports on antitrust enforcement, there's a lot of concern about the relationship between the service they provide, say Facebook connecting you with all your high school friends and the data they collect, which can be used for marketing or intelligence and espionage without you knowing. And I think that we, we're in the middle right now of exploring what, I, what Rohinton might've called the social ramifications of these, successful market structures, and are they doing good or harm? We mentioned earlier in this conversation the social dilemma, the quality of the information environment, the quality of democracy, the ability to separate commerce from cybersecurity in the multilateral relationship between the United States and China, the ability to monitor hacking. All of these things have very, very profound social implications, and I think we're still at the infancy of trying to understand how to harness them for social purpose. And in a place like the United States where the what I'll call fetish of individual rights and freedom, meaning the freedom to do what you want but doesn't include the freedom from it being done to you by others, we have to re-envision what is the balance and what are the ramifications. I think the displacement of work associated with automation and machine learning has productive potential, but the history of the United States, say since 1970, is not inspiring in what you might call the adjustment assistance for people and regions and professions who are being displaced by innovations. And some of the social despair and discord that we've talked about in this conversation are now on a a scale and a breadth that is quite daunting. It is part of the rage and the despair that we are grappling with. So I do think that the, what you might call deeper questions of what is the purpose of a society and how can technology be channeled, shaped, governed to be aligned with that sense of purpose is a very important mission in the coming decades. And the capacity of governance to actually understand when I go to the seminars that we hold in the Presidio at PIA's gatherings for INET. It's fascinating for me to learn how much these people from Silicon Valley around the table understand about the structures and what they're doing relative to the people in Washington. So to govern something, in other words, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, you got to be able to understand what the good of it is and what the bad of it is that needs to be restrained. That involves understanding the technology and understanding having a vision or a metric of what social purpose is so you can align the technology with social purpose. And I don't think that at this juncture we have matured in ways that allow that and to say whatever a tech entrepreneur wants to do, they can do because of individual freedom is an Anne Randian kind of fantasy. It, Which and I guess, I guess not, yeah. I mean, at the other end of the pendulum is authoritarian control of everything and stifling of innovation that could be helpful or people fighting over intellectual property rights. And so the better thing can't be discovered. Using litigation to intimidate people so that you can take them over at half the price of what their innovation is worth if you've got deep pockets. there are all kinds of things happening in that realm that are very, very profound potentially on the quality of life. and I think we have to we we have to understand that. on the plus side, I'm very uh, curious about removing what you might call the barriers to education. I went to MIT. I understand that the electrical engineering curriculum that I experienced is available online for certification all throughout India. That may have some very powerful equilibrating uh, alleviation of poverty, creating knowledge-intensive human capital in places that couldn't afford to pay the tuition. So I think there, I think there's, it's not all good or all evil, but to me, it feels like as a society, we have to redefine what we want. And it's almost childish to just focus on individual rights in light of the lessons we're learning. And we have to understand the ramifications of these innovations, and we need to channel them in constructive direction.
1: It's really interesting that you brought up the people can learn how to code example because uh, uh, right right now you, you can just get certified by Google by, by going through their, their courses, and you can get a job there or something that, that, that is equivalent as a college degree in, in computer science or, or data science. Sorry, and, and so I guess does that mean this is kind of going back to the very beginning of our conversation, which is the discussion on Michael Sandel and the uh, tyranny of meritocracy in, in some way. So uh, does that mean credentialism um, will be increasingly uh, more obsolete as, as we democratize this thing? So, so in other words, what is the point of having another Princeton? It seems that uh, the, the only solution out of this current elite thought bubble of, of Princeton or whatever is that you either a uh, significant reformer where you simply democratize this to such an extent that the elites no longer
0: exist? hmm Well, as you know, both Steve Jobs and Bill Gates did not finish college, and they yeah. did okay. Yeah. I think yeah. if you're talking about what you might call vocational tools, that's a different thing than what you might call building the soul of society. There is what I would refer to as a humanities arts civics, meaning understanding the institutions of society and their ramification, philosophy, and other things that should nurture the curiosity of most every citizen. Probably should start in high school or junior high school. I have a daughter right now in sixth grade who's reading the Iliad and the Odyssey and writing poetry about it and she's a very gifted student, but the, uh, I think those parts of what I'll call soul development are very important. I think the vocational skills, which are related to the credentials and the career development and the economic security that one might achieve, are a different category. And I don't know quite how to organize education so that all of these things are, are what you might call at improper levels brought to bear for the young people of tomorrow.
1: Mr. Johnson, there's simply too many other themes we can dive into, but perhaps I, I should uh, consciously, gradually uh, r- wrap up with, with one last big, big theme I wanted to hear your thoughts on, which is the future of capitalism. In in some way, because there you mentioned this Iranian view of Silicon Valley, which a lot of people say is the the you know this uh, Schumpeter Schumpeterian creative destruction uh, view of Silicon Valley. You leave them alone, let them create values, and if they can sell a software, that's adding value to society. That kind of view. Uh, you don't seem to think that that's the future of capitalism. Certainly not the future of capital.
0: Well, I, I think there's a balance here. Uh, I do not think that Silicon Valley sprung up out of the imagination of a handful of entrepreneurs. I think it was guided by DARPA and the NSA and the military-industrial complex, just and has many side effects that weren't related to the initial agenda, that those gifted entrepreneurs and so forth imagined and are now developing and implementing. I think the space program had many side effects. So I guess what I'm saying is I think there's a role for the state as a catalyst. It's not a pure free market individual phenomena, that's a fantasy. Watch Adam Curtis's documentary. Was it all all wrapped up or all Caught up in machines of loving grace, and it's about the libertarian fantasy that kind of took sixties counterculture and Whole Earth Catalog marketing materials to this notion of freedom of technology. But I think that the uh, the the sense of the future of capitalism is will, whatever the structure, the state, the private sector, how assets and other things are taxed or not, whether the nation state can protect you or whether in a global system there's enough sensitivity at the level of global governance to take care of concerns, I think these are all very, very Stressful dilemmas to consider. They're stressful because I don't see any easy answers. I do think that there's a lot of, which you might call unintended benefit in some creative destruction. But I think if it's unbridled and facilitates a tremendous concentration of wealth, income, and therefore political power, it can times do more harm than good. I think we will see, if we succeed, the state playing a very substantial role in energy transformation, so that we meet the climate change before an ungodly emergency overwhelms society. I think the state will have to play a role, just as, uh, being silly, if the Martians attacked us, We would have to have a war preparation vis-a-vis the UFOs. In World War II, we had war preparation led by administrations. Seth Klein, Naomi Klein's older brother, has written a book called The Good War about the analogy between war preparation by the Canadians who joined World War II before the United States, a couple of years before, and the need for the country of Canada organize itself for energy transformation, because they are a big fossil fuel producer, so they have both demand and supply side challenges. So I, th- I think uh, people like Mariana Mazzucato and Bill Janeway are contemplating these interactions, and that has something to do with the viability of the system and the potential for what we might call a mixed capitalism to succeed. But I think at the end of the day, the, the one thing I would say, and this comes from my work at the Union Theological Seminary, markets and capitalism are a tool, not a deity. They are a means to an end in service of society when used appropriately, and to deify them allows their abuses to unfurl to a degree that should never be tolerated but to allow an ideologue to stifle them in authoritarian control is also dangerous we will need very sophisticated leaders to strike the balance between those two pressures
1: which is saying that the market is not the society And and market value is often very different from societal and social value, Uh, and and we have to be mindful of that. And and, and when markets and capitalism are embedded uh, within a functioning political system and society and democracy, it would do a lot of good, and and if broken, it could do a lot of harm. I would
0: encourage you uh, to have your listeners and my listeners go to the uh, BBC website and listen to my friend Mark Carney. The former governor of the Bank of England's wreath lectures of this year, and the first of there's one on uh, COVID, there's one on climate. He's working with the UN as a special emissary on climate. Uh, and there's the, but the first one is I think the title is market economy versus market society. The market economy works as a tool embedded in something that has values that govern it. A market society is where market values become the value structure. And it's an inversion between means and ends. But Mark, Mark is very deeply studied, going back to Adam Smith, David Hume and others through you know Ricardo and John Stuart Mill and up to the present. In that 55 minutes, you can learn a lot. And uh, yeah. I'd encourage you to to explore his thinking yeah, right now. Uh, to to
1: kind of conclude, what what would be one contrarian thought that you hold that uh, many people around you, even at INET, or or many of your intellectual
0: peers, do not agree with? I think at INET there's a great deal of focus on this question of the inseparability between politics and economics. And what I've said in this conversation is the commodification of social design. The moral legitimacy of capitalism is being embedded in a democracy. And when it captures governance and can buy policies, for instance, when the financial sector through its campaign contributions, can have itself deregulated, maintain budget austerity, so that when you need a bailout, you have contingent fiscal capacity at your disposal. You're allowing that sector to subsidize itself at the expense of the public. That's just a hypothetical. That, it's not. I don't think it's entirely hypothetical, but I'm saying it's, it's just an example. This pertains to many different sectors. If the fossil fuel industry is not brought to the social challenge, then we're in real trouble in terms of life on Earth. And maybe a few people with a billion dollars of stranded assets can use that money to get on a spaceship with Elon Musk and go to Mars but the rest of us experience hell. So I think uh, it's that relationship between defining a moral social vision, debating it so that it's not dogmatic or authoritarian and having the institutions that can guide society in that direction. I think about things often like how much civil servants get paid in America. Compared to Singapore, they're paid a pittance. They sometimes have to go to work for the people they regulated so their kids can go to college. That's not serving the American people. So I, I live in America, but I mean the concerns are, are worldwide. But I think I think the if you said To me, where where are my concerns, identifying social unsustainability, identifying financial fragility, identifying environmental challenges is one dimension. But that political economic nexus is where they will be solved or not solved. And uh, I think that's where a lot of despair arises now. Because they don't see the system of governance and direction and formation of priorities as being wholesome, broad-based, or sustainable.
1: So for the purpose of, of my show, which is Policy Punchline, we always ask our guests at the end what their punchline is. So I guess this, this will also go on your show,
0: but I, 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 yeah, okay. I guess nobody has ever well, asked fine. you what your punchline is. Yeah, well, I'll tell you. I'll give you a punchline for your show first, Please. and then my show. Yeah. My, my my punchline <laughs> is that the situation is daunting. It has to be diagnosed, but we can't afford despondency and despair, and hatred doesn't help. My punchline for you is that I'm inspired and more hopeful when I meet someone like you who has humility and curiosity and vitality. A bunch of people like you are the kind of thing, and I'm not saying they all have to go to Princeton. We've talked about that. But people with your spirit and your unyielding curiosity and your humility and your sense that something's got to happen is a blessing for us all.
1: Thank you so much for those kind words, Mr. Mr. Johnson. You're way too kind.
0: You're, you earned them. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it. And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it. And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking And I'll know my song well before I start singing